welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical and research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. And my name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD in Clinical Artificial Intelligence, along with a Harvard MBA degree. I am interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Today is our second installment of our Physician Investor Series. We'll be talking to Dr. Tanashe Chandauka. Tanashe has an MD-PhD background and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. He works as an associate at Oxford Sciences Innovation, a business builder that works to commercialize Oxford University's world-leading science into life-changing global ventures. OSI's portfolio of companies spans four sectors, life sciences, deep tech, health tech, and software and AI tackling challenges like the diagnosis and treatment of devastating rare diseases and cancer, sustainability, nuclear fusion, quantum computing, and cybersecurity. Tanashi is really passionate about medical innovation and making sure that all the world's people have effective access to quality healthcare. Thank you, Tanashi, so much for joining us today. So thanks so much, everyone. Just starting off with the questions here, Tanashe, you have a very interesting and international story. Um, help us put your story into perspective for our audience from your very early days in the continent of Africa to your time right now at Oxford. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it all starts in the name, as you can pick up. My name is Tanashe, and it's a Shona name, actually, one of the common uh, ethnic groups in Zimbabwe, as well as you know the most common language in Zimbabwe, which is Shona. My name actually means God is with us. And in African cultures, uh, what you're named with uh, kind of like bestows what your future should be. So it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you asked, I guess, you know, how did my upbringing really influence where I am today and where I'm trying to go? Um, I was born in a, what you'd call probably a lower middle class family in Zimbabwe. So both my parents were teachers. And to put this into historical context, if you were black, and you were born in Zimbabwe in the 1960s slash 50s, um, your future was to either be a domestic worker, a farm worker, a policeman, a teacher, and if you were lucky, maybe a nurse, okay? But <laughs> that was it. So, you know, my parents uh, were teachers. They actually met in teaching school. Um, and then the independence war that happened ended up with Zimbabwe forming. And as part of the dispensation post of that war, um, people who were black were given more rights so they could actually finish higher education. And, you know, I was born about nine years after that in 1989. So, you know, I'm really a beneficiary of this historical struggle, uh, I guess, for black people to live in a more equitable world. And I mentioned this because as I grow older, it's been a bigger part of the things that actually have driven me. You mentioned there in the introduction that I'm really driven by trying to make sure that there's equity and and access to healthcare, and that's 100% true. So grew up in this family, um, very strong female influence. Um, My grandma is a prolific figure in my life till this day. And, um, you know, she raised her three daughters, and my mom was one of those three daughters. And um, quite early on, I I, I ended up growing up in a single mother-headed household. And again, I have two other sisters, so a lot of women in my life (laughs) telling me what to do. Um, And yeah, so, you know, I guess you guys can probably empathize with this. But when you come from that kind of background where 
you have just enough to be comfortable and to see what opportunities are in front of you. But you also don't have enough so that you can get too comfortable. So there is only one plan. That is plan A. <laughs> and if plan A doesn't work out, plan A is going to work out. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of household I grew up in where we were really encouraged to just do the best that we could because actually, if we didn't, we were not only letting down ourselves, but like all these people who had sacrificed everything for us to have opportunities. I'll give you an example. My grandmother was a domestic worker for most of her life. And in the context of a race, uh, of a society that was split by race, she was a black woman working in a white household. And because of her surname, her white employers felt that she must have been linked with a certain um, terrorist called Robert Mugabe, because they had similar surnames. And so when he disappeared from house arrest um, one night in 1978, I think, and skipped to the border of Mozambique during uh, this period of like a lot of intense civil war, they said that because she had the same surname as him, she must know where he is. So they reported her to the authorities, the secret police, and they came to the house where she was working. And in the secret police, there were lots of white young policemen. And then there was this one black guy who then told her, while the others were searching her bags in her room, that, listen, you've got two options. It's either we're going to take you back tonight, we're going to torture you and you'll probably die, or you're going to run away. <laughs> and I'm going to create a diversion and you can run away. But this is what's going to happen. And she ran away. And so to this day, you know, she had to change her name. But I, I keep coming back to that because like, as you grow up and you see the struggles that your grandparents and the people before them have been through to just even just try and get you a chance to go to school. When you go to school, you really go to school. You're not there to play games. <laughs> okay, you're there to play soccer and have fun. But your primary mission is to absorb knowledge and make sure that you can uplift your family. And that's been the number one thing that's probably driven me in my life. Um, so was in Zimbabwe, left because of the economic challenges that the country was going through. Uh, I was going to a really fun boarding school uh, called St. Ignatius College, a Catholic boarding school. Um, so super strict with priests out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I went to another boys boarding school in South Africa called Cistitians Boys College. Uh, really enjoyed my time there. And, you know, you have to remember, right? So in Zimbabwe, it was all about the books. It's like the Catholic thing of like, you shall study, 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 right? Whereas in Cistitians, it was all about like making you into a whole gentleman, you know, this whole English uh, public school uh, ethos, because, you know, those were the founders of the school. So besides having to study, 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 you had to like go camping, build rockets, uh, be in the Toastmasters Society and all of this stuff. And actually, that was really great because I, I think it gave me a well-rounded experience and I really enjoyed sports. But, um, you know, what was really strange was that being a young Black person in a school that, again, South Africa is even more hectic when it comes to race and inequity. What had been an all-white, really elite school, um, I became the head prefect of that school. And imagine, like, I came in when everyone had been at the school for a lot longer. So I came in halfway through high school. I spoke differently, came from a different country. And it really meant a lot to me that my fellow pupils had entrusted me with that job to sort of lead them. So that's where, I guess, I grew up into being a leader was in that school, with the opportunities that were there. And guys, let's not lie. It's not fun growing up in a totalitarian regime. Um, Zimbabwe 
had elections, but they weren't really elections. <laughs> and, you know, country was super homophobic, did not really tolerate, I guess, lateral thinking, liberal thinking, and to this day struggles with issues around like human rights. Let's not lie, right? Um, so, you know, being in South Africa, that it's sort of been at the other end of that journey where you could be a Martian and you still had a place, no, not blink an eye. It was great. Like I found that I was different and I was now in a country that accepted me for being different. And that allowed me to reach my full potential at that age. Um, my high school was so busy, guys, that I didn't really think through what I was going to do after being in high school. Um, so I did a year of architecture and I have this constant right left brain battle. And I'm sure you guys do too. But um, I was really, I did well in, in architecture academically, but I really struggled um, in terms of finding my own purpose with this. I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life. And I met some really cool doctors. Um, in fact, my best friend's mom uh, took me to a hospital where she worked uh, in clinical trials. And she attached me to another senior a doctor. And he hated having me there. He was like, don't be a doctor. Go be an accountant. Don't do this. Don't do this. It doesn't pay. I'm here all night. It's terrible. But you know what? Every time I saw him with the patients, it was amazing. I was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> like, yeah, like, this is exactly what I want to do. And he was like, no, don't do it. But I kept on watching him day after day for two weeks. And I was just into it. And so uh, while I was at, at, at the University of Cape Town doing architecture, I, just, I applied for medicine. I didn't tell anyone outside my family. And then what happened was I actually got in and my mom was so proud of me. She like ran to me with the letter and I was crying because then I was like, oh shit, like I actually have to switch away from architecture because once I applied for medicine and I knew I was leaving, kind of, I sort of relaxed in architecture. And the weird thing is when you stop stressing, your marks go up, you start having fun, you start drinking and partying, everything's great now you don't have a crisis. <laughs> and so I was like, actually, it's been really fun, but now I have to go. So on the first day of medicine, I actually didn't quite go to the medicine classes. I went with the architecture people and they were like, oh, you're back. Second year is going to be fun. And I stood in the queue and I went to see the course convener and I gave them my <laughs> certificate to say I'm leaving. <laughs> and then I walked out and I was like, hey guys, like I'm not going to be doing architecture this year. I'm switching to medicine. Cheers. They were like, no, this guy's lying. Because I used to do 120, like 100, sorry, just plus 100 hour weeks. So I used to sleep in the architecture lab doing my drawings. And they were like, no ways. This is the guy who like doesn't go out and does architecture. He's not leaving. But I did. And it was a great decision. <laughs> um, and then fast forward, like in my second year of medicine, the first year of medicine, I did well, but I doubted myself. I was like, have I made a mistake? I'm sure you guys know the feeling. But I remember in the second year, there was a pathology class and the person held up a cirrhotic liver, uh, the pathologist. And she said, you know, explain what's happened. And I explained it perfectly. And she was like, great, young man. And I was like, yes, I think this is the thing I should do. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I really dove into medical school. I used to do dissections. And, and like, so let me put it this way. My mom was made redundant in her job. And again, I went through this period in time where we didn't actually have that much money. And I had to work, this was like in my fourth year. So in the middle of, towards the end of my medical school, my marks were fine, but I didn't have money. So I had to like hustle to get a student loan <laughs> and it was hectic. And I got a, a student loan to finish my medical school. 
I was doing dissections during the holidays. So you know the the anatomical specimens that everyone else would see during term? Do you know who made those? It was me during the holidays. <laughs> so I, I, I got paid and I still remember listening to like Avicii and Tiesto being alone at six o'clock in the anatomy lab. And this sounds terrible, but like with these like uh, muscle specimens of like uh, limbs that I'm designing and stuff, and it must've looked like Hannibal Lecter, but I was just there like pumping to my house music and like earning money for my like uh, triathlon habits and everything. And it was, when I look back at it, I think it was crazy, but I had to do what I had to do to survive. <laughs> and yeah, that was it. So at the end of my medical school, all of these experiences, starting an international student surgical society from Africa that ended up involving like uh, a ton of other countries. I think I don't want to get the figures wrong, but we definitely had around about 20 to 30 international student surgical societies involved. And, you know, the publications are all out there, but the best part was meeting people from around the world, bringing them to Cape Town in South Africa. But all these leadership experiences going through tough times um, prepared me and I applied for a Rhodes scholarship and yeah, I got the scholarship. And one last little bit, and I know I've spoken for a while, I ended up delaying my Rhodes Scholarship and choosing to work in a hospital in an impoverished uh, place for two years, just so that I could learn a bit more about the problems in medicine before coming up to Oxford. Tanashi, what an inspiring story. You know, I was taking notes because there's so much there, so much richness there. And that sort of beautifully sad but inspiring story you told about your uh, grandmother, that was heart-wrenching. And then sort of your transition from Zimbabwe to South Africa reminded me a little bit about my transition from Bangladesh to Canada when I was 13 years old. And I know you mentioned that a lot of immigrants, uh, you know, all three of us here in some form or another are immigrants. And and we all have these amazing stories. You know, I think about my father in rural Bangladesh growing up lower middle class. And lower middle class in rural Bangladesh essentially means you're poor, very poor, actually. And how he, you know, got scholarships to go to the best schools. And then I always would tell myself, like you would, that if he could get to where he was with how little he had, why can't I, you know, there's no end to what I can do, essentially. Um, So I really, really connected with what you said there. And I know Alex did as well. So just sort of jumping forward here a little bit, you sort of laid out beautifully uh, your childhood and up to you finishing medicine um, at uh, the University of Cape Town and then sort of going to Oxford. Wanted to ask, you know, when did you know that you were going to venture off the traditional career path of a physician? And, and that transition, was that transition natural for you or was it very challenging? Oh, it was, you know what, guys, I feel like I've been going off the beaten path my whole life. (laughs) So, you know, again, right, like, so I'm in high school, and um, I'm at the end of high school, and I'm trying to pick a degree, and it's super confusing. For other people, it's super easy. I'm like, I could be an engineer. (laughs) I could do like medicine, I could do philosophy, Uh, I could do, you know, business. And I said to my mom, I want to do business. And she said, I will not pay for business because what kind of degree is that? No one goes to school to learn business. You go, you do a professional degree, and then you can always do business some other point in your life. It's not a degree. It's what you do, uh, which is really interesting, actually, looking back. The point in medicine where I realized, let me put it this way, my grounding in life, I always felt like I had to do more for my people. And that meant that I had to have a toolkit. So like leadership, understanding how to navigate politics, this business angle, and then like having like a hardcore 
professional skills somewhere in there just to like fall back on in a sense. But it was definitely medicine. I think in the process of setting up that International Student Surgical Society and being involved in clinical research. So a lot of medical students just say like, oh, clinical research is for the nerds. I'll just read the book and I'll just practice medicine. I was like, no, but guys, like I can actually generate the knowledge. This is really fun. And being involved in clinical research opens up your mind. You just realize that there's this whole international circuit of people who are doing multiple different disciplines. They're scientists, doctors, and they're also organizing for their research to, to, to through advocacy to reach like and touch people's lives. And that's the kind of person I wanted to be. All the people who I looked up to had this sort of toolkit of skills. That's very insightful. Thank you, uh, Tanashe. So, you know, moving forward here a little bit, um, you've talked about mentorship in the past. I've, I've read some of the stuff that's been written about you or that you've written where you sort of talk about mentorship. What role, if you can describe to us in a little bit more detail, has mentorship and also peer relationships had in helping you sort of get to where you are and, and to helping you diversify your interests? I guess so. Three strands. Number one, mentorship keeps you accountable, right? It forces you to commit to stuff. When you have someone who you talk to, who you look up to, and you externalize your thoughts, you kind of like make a pact with both of them and yourself to follow through. So number one, commitment. Number two, it's a guardrail. It's a guardrail, I think, against sometimes losing your way. So I think really good mentors, and by the way, like mentors aren't necessarily people who you go up to and say, hey, can you be my mentor? They just, they just end up being your mentors. I think they're the kind of people who create a sort of logic system in which when you start to do things that aren't really part of your value set of systems and you look at them, they act like a mirror, a foil. And you can look and you can see this isn't who I want to be. And the final thing is that I think it's just really helpful to have people who can generate ideas that you never thought you could even achieve. So they see your potential and they stretch you. So it's those things. I think commitment, sort of guardrail, and the sort of stretching element of potential. I love that. I'd never actually formalized it in that sort of way, but that's right on the money. And that's how I think a lot of us in our lives, you know, mentors have changed our lives in significant ways. In college, I was almost going to get a PhD in organic chemistry because of one of my mentors. And then <laughs> my parents were like, no, maybe do medicine. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we all have our own yeah, unique yeah, stories, yeah, but that's yeah, for another yeah, day. Yeah. But, um, but if I can, if I can yeah. add something there, I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't talk about like the impact of at least two people. So I had a, a general, you mentioned general surgery earlier. I had a general surgery mentor. So he's the one who encouraged us to set up this International Student Surgical Society. His name is Delevey Khan. He was one of the first ever black surgeons in South Africa who was a transplant surgeon, as well as the head of the surgical department at the University of Cape Town. To give you context, he also did, he trained under uh, Professor Chris Barnard. So he, that's the guy who did the world's first heart transplant. So he inherited that transplant department. <laughs> <laughs> from these really great generation of doctors. And, um, you know, he would invite us to come and do kidney transplants with them and stuff, which is way cooler than going out <laughs> and getting sozzled. And the other person is a professor who has unfortunately passed away. His name is Bongani Mayosi. And again, you know, he was one of the first ever black physicians to come up to Oxford from South Africa and get a PhD. And, you know, I remember meeting him and seeing how meticulous he was with patients and examinations. 
always doing the blood pressure before he touched the patients. And I was like, you know what? That's the guy I want to be. I want to be a doctor like him. I want to try and come to Oxford. Thank you for sharing that, Tanashe. You know, you know, you've done so many different things, and it sounds like whatever you've done, you've done very well. And you've sometimes even mishmashed your interests into, let's say, medical illustration, your interests from architecture and, and medicine. And I've also spent many a nights uh, reading those anatomy books and thinking, who actually does these illustrations? So thank you for finally answering those questions. But <laughs> you know, the concept of playing to your strengths, I've always encouraged myself with the phrase, play to your strengths. The term comparative advantage comes to mind. It's very prominent in, in the MBA curriculum, yeah. uh, especially important in international trade where different countries produce whatever products play to their relative strengths. My friend at HBS and my neighbor actually calls it, quote, the personal low-hanging fruit, which is where your strengths and the ability to have deep impact, lasting impact overlaps. But knowing where your strengths can lie can be challenging for a lot of people, especially if you haven't done something before. So do you have any advice to young docs or docs-to-be who may want to venture into the unknown, who may want to follow your path? Uh, How can they actually identify these strengths and move forward? Go live, 100%. Like, there's a famous musician, his name is Drake, and he he sings this song called YOLO, (laughs) You Only Live Once. No, I, I go to that and I say, you can't possibly know what your strengths are until you know what your weaknesses are, right? And the only way to know the difference is to go do stuff. And here's the thing about medicine, right? Because I came from architecture, I never quite saw myself as a normal medic. I felt a bit like a spaceman traveling through space and arriving in, on this like alien colony and just like being part of it, but not being part of it. Do you get what I mean? So in architecture, you're encouraged to Think about how people interact with the world you are creating. You are a custodian of their experience. If you make a bad building or a bad urban space, you're literally going to like ruin people's lives. Like, you know, you influence delay in traffic to their mental health. But in medicine, no one ever emphasizes this to us. Like the way we treat people, the way we design hospitals, the way we design treatment care pathways, like that's real human beings navigating that. And so we as doctors, and I I think we need to realize our humanity. We often have books that tell us that if you give that much potassium, that will happen. Don't do that, (laughs) right? Whereas in real life, a pandemic will happen, and then you have to like tear apart all your roadmaps, right? If you treat a pandemic like influenza, everyone dies. (laughs) If you treat a pandemic based on the evidence that's in front of you, and you sort of try different things, then you will actually have a much better approach at the end of it, right? So going back to your question, um, playing to your strengths, I would say it's very important to play to your strengths. But I think particularly if you're at the beginning of your journey of beating a different path, you have to be really flexible and you just have to be open to the fact that it's not always going to be easy. Perfect, Tanashe. You know, great, insightful um, advice that's going to be readily applicable, I think, to our audience of young docs and docs-to-be. I'm going to turn it over now to Alex uh, for the remaining few questions. Sure. Thank you very much, Shad. And thank you, Tanashe. That is an inspiring story. And I definitely connect with that story. I mean, I also grew up in a single mother household in Ukraine. And I really enjoyed listening to this story. And I I remember in one of our previous conversations, you've mentioned that one of the things that you've learned as a medical doctor was a very strong work ethic and dedication to service. 
and that you apply these skills and learnings in your job in VC. So I was wondering what transferable skills do you think physicians can take from their clinical training and use when they venture off the beaten path? And maybe as a bonus question over that, how did you develop your storytelling skills, which are amazing? And did medicine contribute to that? I think I can start with the latter. I wouldn't call myself a great storyteller. I think in my family, people love telling stories. So you have to entertain each other. <laughs> and I think it may come from that. I think medicine is one of the coolest professions on the planet. You get to be a science fundi, but then you get to practice an art. How cool is that? And on top of that, you get to do it with real people and like solve their problems. Your entire job is about making people feel better. How awesome is that? right? The things that, technically speaking, the things that I think medicine really helps with is number one, I think evidence. When you come from an evidence-based approach background, and I think like you guys, as you guys are now going into venture and entrepreneurialism, you realize that there's a lot of things that are not true, that are told with really good stories. (laughs) And you have to apply critical thinking. And I think medicine teaches you to look for evidence. So whether it's taking an ECG and looking at the wave patterns, right? Or whether it's taking blood, whether it's looking at someone's urine, you can apply that to different things, right? So if you're building a venture idea, the first thing you do is you understand the problem. So you can't just rush into a diagnosis. You have to understand the problem that's out there. There is a a disease with unmet need. You need to develop a new therapy. What's the evidence that's out there? You're developing an app for people to use to navigate in a subway system. You need to really understand what their problems are. You need to write it down and go through that experience. Second thing I think is being meticulous. Um, In medicine, if you don't do things right, it's quite simple. People get hurt or they die. Don't do that. (laughs) Whereas I think in business, the link between your actions and the consequences is so distant that people tend to think that your actions have no consequences. Oh, it's just about money. It's fine. That's not true, right? If you develop a venture that provides a poor service, you can make someone's day really terrible. They can end up missing their appointment or any number of things, and they don't get a job, and a child isn't fed. If you develop a bad business, your employees don't get paid. They lose their jobs. (laughs) They have alcoholism divorce, they raise children who are not happy and have any number of health issues. Do you see what I mean? But the chain between you being a bad business builder and the consequences is so far apart, or even with climate change, build cool idea, makes lots of money, is bad for the planet, global warming happens in the future, it's not your problem. So yeah, that's the thing is I think with medicine is meticulous, I think evidence gathering and almost a healthy fear of consequences. That is fantastic insight, Tinashe. And I think one of the themes that are emerging from our conversations is that how medicine prepares you with multiple different skill sets that can be really valuable when you choose to venture off the beaten path. And I think one of the questions that I'm really interested to get your input on is around the psychological challenges of perhaps shifting the career path. So I studied and worked as a medic in Syria during the civil war. And I understand the meaning of coming from a place without a solid safety net to fall back on. 
And one of the appeals of a medical career was the financial stability, really. I'm really interested to know your thoughts on leaving that stability behind, which can be daunting for people coming from underprivileged backgrounds. What do you think are the psychological challenges around making the decision to venture off the beaten path? How can future physicians and physicians-to-be overcome them? And did you face any when you made the decision? That's a really, um, I have to say, you know, the question you asked is a really good one. I think I have to be honest and say that when I studied medicine, um, I w- you see, when you studied medicine in South Africa, when I started doing it, doctors were super underpaid. It wasn't a lucrative profession, right? You remember the story I told you that there was a consultant who was telling me not to do medicine. It's because he could see that the junior trainees were heavily underpaid. And that if I became an accountant within four years of that, like, you know, I'd be earning a lot more. So I I didn't do medicine for the money. I did it because it could really be something that I could see myself doing as a a 65-year-old or 80-year-old retiree. And I still believe that. But you're right that if you move away from clinical medicine, you go away from a stable income. But then again, right, the kind of person who's thinking about shifting away from medicine probably doesn't care about that. They're probably maximizing their mental health or some kind of skill that they feel like they're not doing in their current job. And I would definitely encourage that. I think life is too short to not be choosing happiness and doing the things that really make you feel like you're making an impact in the world. So I'd encourage anyone who is in a situation where maybe financially they're tied to medicine to consider different parts. You can get a financial advisor, Um, You can sit down, even if it's about like debt management, payment of school, uh, student loans, and so on. There's always a way out. But then again, like, I don't want to seem like I'm super privileged and I'm not understanding the different contexts that people are in. But as someone who was also struggling with these things, it wasn't enough to sort of chain me to a place of not feeling like I wasn't fulfilled. And so it almost felt like I would rather maximize on the chance of achieving my full potential in happiness rather than settling for something and then like a maybe not really earning that much money anyway <laughs> and b um being super unhappy that i didn't use the skills and talents that i was given that is amazing uh insight tinashe and i think one of the themes that are also emerging from our uh, conversations is around the fact that sometimes people overestimate the risk of going on an untraditional career path. I mean, if you have a great venture idea, you can try it for six months or a year. And if it doesn't work out, you still have your medical background. You can still go back to medical practice. So I think that is one of the interesting ideas that, that are emerging. I remember, Tinashe, in one of your uh, interviews with Impactful Conversations, you talk about the value of disregarding conventional rules that don't make sense and about the psychology of running first in the race and having to set the pace when you do so. So I'm really interested to know what sort of conventional rules did you do away with and why, and how can others follow this pattern, essentially? Yeah, I guess I'll go back to that analogy. Um, Just to sort of put it in context, um, at a certain stage in my life, I did like a lot of athletics, running, and so on. I remember running a race where unexpectedly I ended up being um, like in the first position in the middle of this like 5k sprint race, right? Running through a forest and stuff. And it was scary because 
I had to now think, okay, wait a minute. As someone who is used to running second and then trying to pit the other person in the final, uh, like 100 meters, that's easy. The other person sets the pace. You just keep with them and you run. But when you're first, you have to measure every single breath you take. If you've got a chance to sort of put the sword in your opponent and just twist the knife, you have to do it, even though you feel like you're on the edge because maybe that's your only chance. And I think on that day, I remember I've never run so hard in my life. And I didn't look back. So when I got across the finish line, it was like another minute until the person came. So I was running against a ghost, basically, myself. And taking it a few steps back to your question, I think sometimes we invent these ghosts, <laughs> right? And they actually shackle us. Like, what if I fail? Maybe failure isn't actually that bad. Like, okay, so you go and you get involved in a startup or you go and you do a startup and it doesn't work out. You learned how to manage a team. You maybe learned that maybe you're not good in certain dynamics. Maybe you learned to be a bit more assertive. Maybe you got feedback about things you didn't want to hear about. But just like athleticism and, and physical exertion, you can only get stronger if you just go do the stuff. So I go back to that point of go live. <laughs> if you don't do activities, like let's say, if, it's, if you want to be a startup founder, go build the thing. Because you need to build the muscle to become that founder. And the only way to do it is to go through difficult experiences. But difficult experiences do not equate to failure. You need to find a way to process that and make sure that like failure is not the result of knowledge, is not equating to missing a goal. Does that make sense? Makes absolute sense. And I think just thinking about this great insight, I think there's a lot about deciding to step outside the comfort zone and putting yourself in this learning mentality where you're actually receptive to being challenged and willing to learn from that challenge. And I, I think this is a great insights and thank you for sharing them, Tinashe. Yeah. Last question is, how can our listeners follow you and learn more about the work that you do? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I have Twitter, but I don't really tweet. I have LinkedIn and I always talk about other people on it. So you can follow me there. I think follow, follow the impact that I have in small ways. So here's the thing. So I'm involved with Amref Health Africa, fantastic charity that um, basically work in about, I think, 40 African countries. They have 16 offices across the, uh, the African continent. And they are helping to women to get access to contraception. They're, they're trying to educate women and get them into school so they don't have to suffer from female genital mutilation. They're providing access to water and sanitary services uh, to people who live in rural areas, all of these things. And, and they're currently on a vaccination drive. I'd say, don't follow me. Follow AMREF. Like I'm involved with them, but that's really cool. This is an organization that's doing cool stuff. Oxford Sciences Innovation, please follow them. You know, they've got, so it's a new science building company that's in, based in Oxford. You know, one of the companies that was involved in the Oxford vaccine, so that's Vaxitech and, and several other really interesting companies. So that's impactful work. So follow Oxford Sciences Innovation. A another thing that I would say is, you know, I work with a lot of scientists in Oxford and, and some of them have founded a really cool company called Circadian Therapeutics. And they're developing new treatments for, people who have a horrible disease called non-24 sleep-wake cycle disorder. So imagine not being able to go to bed at the same time every day <laughs> and sometimes going to bed in the middle of the day. And so, you know, Professor Russell Foster, uh, Professor Sridhar Vasudevan, and Professor Artie Jagannath 
have developed like a host of new medicines to help these people who have jet lag disorders and sleep-wake cycle disorders to basically be like normal again and sleep at a specific time or range and have their lives back. They can go to work now. Uh, They can have normal relationships. They can feel like functional people. So yeah, that's it. AMREF Health Africa, Oxford Sciences Innovation, and of course, I think circadian therapeutics. You can see my impact there. Thank you so much, Dinesh. This has been an amazing episode. I really enjoyed the the candid conversation. And I thank you so much for sharing your story, for being very open and for sharing such valuable insight. And you really spoke very beautifully about medicine and about venturing off the traditional path of medicine. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you to you guys for creating this platform. That was such a fascinating conversation with Tanache Alex. He had some fantastic insights. You know, two things that really stuck out to me. The first one was his visual about running in first place or second place. And I want to tie that to mentorship. Think about first place as the person who's really the first one to venture off to the beaten path. And you can't look behind you. There's no one in front of you. You really have to figure everything out yourself. But when you're the person who's second, you have someone in front of you. You can pace yourself. You have a lot more data points. And there's a higher chance that you can actually succeed because you can stay with the first person and then sprint at the end, like Tanache said. Lucky for us, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there weren't a lot of physicians that were venturing off the beaten path. There weren't a lot of MD, MBAs. But now we all, no matter whether we're in Boston, SF, Chicago, Detroit, Miami, we know one or two doctors in our network or our mentors' networks who maybe have an MBA, who maybe are writers or entrepreneurs or consultants. And we have access to those mentors nowadays. And so don't put the onus on yourself anymore to be the very first person to do something. We have good role models that we can reach out to and see how they've done it and take notes from them. So I think that's important. And the second takeaway I had was the idea that he said that difficult experiences does not necessarily mean failure. I think that's absolutely beautiful because a lot of the times in medicine, we're so hyper-focused, we think you know, from residency, we go to fellowship, from fellowship, we go to uh, become an attending. And it's a little bit too hyper narrow. And we think any second not spent on the clinical path may be a second that's wasted. That's not a good way to think about things. Let's say you have an idea for a new venture, you take six to 12 months off, you try to achieve product market fit, you look at your value proposition, you build out a team, and let's say you lead a couple of people. Even if you don't get a billion dollar exit, you still developed a lot of beautiful skills along the way that will be meaningful down the line. And so think about those difficult experiences as success stories and not necessarily failures. Over to you, Alex. Thanks, Chad. That's a great point. And I think just building on the the point of the risk of taking an untraditional career path, I think people tend to overestimate that risk because of a lack of understanding of the opportunities that taking an untraditional career path would create. So just building on that analogy, say that you're a medical doctor, you have your license to practice, and you have this amazing venture idea and you decide to do it. So down the line in two years, if that doesn't work, you can go and join a venture fund that invests in healthcare, or you can join a startup or a corporate that works on health tech, or you can launch your own new startup. And your safety net would be to go back to clinical practice. So I think there is is a case of overestimation of 
the cost of taking that opportunity and underestimation of the missed opportunity of not taking that path. I know that's a mouthful. The additional aspect, uh, which I thought was very powerful, is the importance of taking some time to really deeply understand yourself and reflect about your motivation. What is the thing that you want to achieve in life? And I think that can be a powerful motivator for you to choose the career path that would enable you to achieve that goal. And I think for Tinashe, the overarching goal seems to be achieving that impact in his life. And so I would really encourage our listeners to maybe do this exercise because it certainly has been helpful for myself. So on that note, join us next episode in which we will have great speakers like Tinashe and like Martin and Dan. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Physicians of the Beaten Path podcast and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbbpodcast.com. See you soon.